Good morning. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles in chapter 18 this morning. 2 Chronicles chapter 18. The hymns that uh, Pastor Davies chose this morning uh, will fit right in with uh, what we want to look at today. And uh, I have chosen this uh, scene, throne scene, particularly for this morning, knowing that we would be here as men, and particularly many here as Christian leaders and preachers. And what I want to do with the throne scene we're going to consider this morning is focus a little bit more on the individual, this man Micaiah, rather than so much on the Lord and the throne. And that, of course, is by design <clears throat> because of what we want to cover today. Second Chronicles 18, I want to entitle the message today, as you can see, uh, maybe on the, um, the handout for the conference, Courage to Speak the Truth. And in just a moment, we're going to read several, a number of verses from this chapter, <clears throat> make some words of introduction, and look at what the Lord has for us. But let's pray first and commit our time to him. <clears throat> Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning of opening your word again and considering a portion of it. We thank you, Lord, that you give us the opportunity in life to take the light to the world of telling the story. But Father, we are but dust, and sometimes we shrink out of fear, out of discouragement, out of disappointment from doing and fulfilling this wonderful calling and duty. We pray this morning that as we see a vision of you in heaven that it will strengthen us in our calling. Help us to be faithful. Bless our time in your word now. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 1, excuse me, Second Chronicles chapter 18, verse 1. I need to read a number of verses here. I hesitate to do that, but we need to get the context and familiarize ourselves with this account again. So let me begin with verse 1, and we'll read and skip through the chapter a little bit. Now Jehoshaphat had riches and honor in abundance and joined affinity with Ahab. And after certain years, he went down to Ahab to Samaria. And Ahab killed sheep and oxen for him in abundance and for the people that he had with him and persuaded him to go up with him to Ramoth-Gilead. And Ahab, king of Israel, said unto Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Wilt thou go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? And he answered him, I am as thou art, and my people as thy people, and we will be with thee in the war. And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Therefore the king of Israel gathered together of prophets four hundred men, and said unto them, Shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? 
And they said, Go up, for God will deliver it into the king's hands, hand. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides that we might inquire of him? And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him, for he never prophesied good unto me, but always evil. The same as Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. And the king of Israel called for one of his officers and said, Fetch quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Verse 12. And the messenger that went to call Micaiah spake to him, saying, Behold, the words of the prophets declare good to the king with one assent. In other words, they're unanimous in what they're saying. Let thy word, therefore, I pray thee, be like one of theirs, and speak thou good. And Micaiah said, As the Lord liveth, even what my God saith, that will I speak. Verse 18. Again he said, Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall entice Ahab, king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one spake, saying, After this manner, and another saying, After that manner. Then there came out a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Those 400 prophets? I'll be a lying spirit in their mouth. And the Lord said, Thou shalt entice him, and thou shalt also prevail. Go out and do even so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of these thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoke evil against thee. Then Zedekiah, the son of Kaniah, came near and spoke and smote Micaiah upon the cheek and said, Which way went the Spirit of the Lord from me to speak unto thee? And Micaiah said, Behold, thou shalt see on that day when thou shalt go out into the inner chamber to hide thyself. Then the king of Israel said, Take ye Micaiah and carry him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus saith the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with bread of affliction and with water of affliction until I return in peace. And Micaiah said, If thou certainly return in peace, then hath not the Lord spoken by me. And he said, Hearken, all ye people. Courage to speak the truth. Most of you here this morning, no doubt, know the story well. But it bears repeating. In the mid-1800s, the London Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon became aware that there were men in the Baptist fellowship that he was a part of who denied certain fundamental truths of the Bible. And initially, Spurgeon confronted that unbelief by privately approaching the 
leaders in the Baptist Union urging them to deal with the problem. But Spurgeon's efforts failed. And you remember that as a result, on, in August 1887, he published an article entitled The Downgrade, followed by further, three further articles in which he stated the case and called for action. And when there was no positive response from the Union leadership, Spurgeon took the unprecedented, and you have to remember that he was pastoring the largest Baptist church in the world at the time. And he took the unprecedented but the historic step and he resigned from the Union. And the date was October 1887 and he was 43 years old. However, Spurgeon was such an influential leader that his resignation immediately put the officers of the Union on the defensive. But unwilling to act on the unbelief, that leadership instead accused Spurgeon of creating division and insisted that he produce the evidence that there were actually unorthodox men in the Union. Now, Spurgeon had the evidence. Several years prior to this, a man by the name of Booth, who was the secretary of the Union, had actually given to Spurgeon in a letter the names and churches of men in the Union who were not Orthodox. Spurgeon had the goods. But when he told Booth that he was going to share that material, Booth, apparently not being a man of courage and a real man of conviction, told Spurgeon that all of that was given to him in confidence, and Spurgeon couldn't share it. And so Spurgeon, being a man of principle, would not share the material. But because he would not produce then the material, the Union leaders determined that they would not give him the privilege of resigning. They would censure him. And so at the next annual Baptist Union Assembly, over 2,000 present. Some of those men Spurgeon himself had actually trained. Over 2,000 present, present, there was a resolution passed that amounted to a censure of Spurgeon. Four years later, Spurgeon was dead. And his wife declared that the downgrade controversy took him to an early grave. It was, that, it was her conviction that was the case. Valiant for the truth in the midst of compromise. In our series on the throne scenes of God in heaven, we've now come to this one involving Micaiah, a fearless prophet for God. And you again know that Ahab was of the northern kingdom, Jehoshaphat, the king of the southern kingdom, and in consultation about the uh, the possibility, they, there was consultation between them about the possibility of uniting their forces to take back land that had been seized by Syria. But before they did that, both men actually desired a word from the prophets to confirm that their intents would actually be blessed by God. So 400 prophets were called, but they sold their integrity and declared that God would be with the king's endeavor. But Micaiah, undaunted at being alone in his proclamation, 
assures the entire royal entourage that the mission is doomed to failure. And the entire basis of Micaiah's prophetic word is the vision he was given of that throne scene in heaven in verse number 18. The judge of all the earth on his throne, exercising his sovereign authority to see that his judgments would come to pass. And God sought to deliver that verdict through a man who was valiant for the truth. Now, what is remarkable? And this really is remarkable, man. What is remarkable about this man, Micaiah, is that this is the only incident recorded about him in the entire Bible. Out of an entire life or prophetic ministry, this is the one thing heaven records about him, the only thing that's recorded about this man, that he was faithful in the midst of compromise. It's the only thing. You look and search the Bible. And so there would be no more fitting message. I mean, while 400 prophets were willing to parrot public policy, Micaiah voiced the truth even at the peril of his own life. And so there would be no more fitting message to inscribe on the tomb man, tombstone of such a man than this, valiant for the truth. And after I'd already given the men a title for this message for the little brochure for the conference, I thought I should have entitled it Valiant for the Truth. Now, men, what can we learn from this man about having courage to speak the truth? Well, the place to begin, and some of you are well familiar with the account. Some may not be. But I don't want to take anything for granted. And so at the risk of giving us material we've already, had, we, I've, we've already given or are aware of, I think the place to begin is actually just to get an overview of his life and ministry here. So I've simply entitled point one, nothing greater than Micaiah's story. And you remember back in verses one through three, that we're told there was an alliance which Ahab and Jehoshaphat had, and because of that, they decided to try to retake the northern city of Ramoth-Gilead out of the hands of the Assyrians. And the entire rest of the chapter gives us the details of that agreement and that effort. And verse 4, Jehoshaphat does the right thing, and he wants to get a word from God. He wants to know the Lord's mind about that. You know, it was that military battle of the Lord. He wants to get some counsel. And so in verse 5, Ahab gathered 400 prophets to get that kind of counsel, but Jehoshaphat didn't buy what they said. Now, we don't know why that is, but Jehoshaphat was skeptical. And so he said to Ahab um, in verse number 6, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord? Apparently he knew something about those 400 guys. Is there not here a prophet of the Lord? And Jehoshaphat comes back in verse 7 and says, well, there is one guy, but I don't like him. Because in, of course, Ahab's estimation, he never prophesied good. <laughs> you ever known people like that? Pastor, you're always after me. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know why you don't say anything nice, you know. Well, we ought to say nice things. Anyway, let's not go there today, but you know how that is. And so... 
giving credit to Jehoshaphat at the end of verse 7, he kind of rebuked Ahab and said, look, don't say that about the man. I don't know how well Jehoshaphat knew Micaiah, but at least he knew enough to say, look, you know, he did stand up for the guy, even though Jehoshaphat himself was a compromiser. And we're not going there today, but he really was a compromiser himself. So in verse number 8, Ahab calls and says, look, fetch quickly <coughs> Micaiah, <coughs> go, go and get Micaiah, the son of Imlaw. I'm not sure about this. Some people actually think Micaiah was already in prison. But anyway, they went and got Micaiah. And while the messenger has gone to get Micaiah, Zedekiah, who's the ringleader of the 400 prophets, makes these, you know, horn, irons of, or these horns of iron and begins to act out a little drama. He can kind of, you know, push around a little bit and push around a little bit and tells Ahab and Joshua, look, if you go up, this is what you'll do to the Syrians. You'll push them back. And about that time, the messenger begins to come with Micaiah in verse number 12, and he says, look, there has been a unanimous, a unanimous counsel given by the 400 prophets. You just need to fall in line and go with the party policy. Just, just, you know. And Micaiah, <laughs> I love the guy, being the man that he is, he says, he says look, whatever God said, that's what I'm going to speak. And if it's the party policy, then I'll talk that. But if it's not, I will say what God said. So sure enough, in verse 14, he comes along. And again, folks, picture this. Picture this, man. You've got two kings. And they're sitting there. And they've got all their royal entourage. And they've got their robes on. I mean, this is, you know, this, this is not just you know, some cup of coffee down at the local shop. I mean, this, this, is, a, this is an official gathering. And Micaiah comes in and they, you know, what do you think? And Micaiah says, oh, go on up. <laughs> and he says what the foreign prophet said. But Ahab, probably, maybe because I'm, I'm assuming I can't hear Micaiah, but maybe he was a bit sarcastic in verse 14. You know, Ahab comes back in verse 15 and said, see, didn't I tell you he never speaks the truth? <laughs> he immediately discerned that Micaiah wasn't saying the truth. You know, go up, you'll win. Well, Micaiah wasn't. And he comes back in verse 16, and he says of the sheep, he says, these have no master. Like, what happened to Ahab? <laughs> the troops have no master. Something's going to happen to Ahab. And, of course, Ahab comes back in verse 17 and says, didn't I tell you? He doesn't prophesy good, but he prophesies evil. And now, now Micaiah comes back in verse 18, and he just levels them. I mean, he has this vision of God, not of the creator, Revelation 4. Not of the lawgiver and a God of words. Now he comes back and sees God as the judge on his throne who has determined and made certain verdicts about the truth. And as the judge, they will come to pass. And the judge who evaluates the faithfulness, the unfaithfulness, the good, the bad, the motives, all the hidden things of darkness. And he renders a judgment regarding a man's life and work. Ahab and Jehoshaphat? But men at the same time, he evaluates and judges the faithful ministry of the man of God. And of course, we've read the rest of that, that 
of those hosts that are there. There's a, long, there's a spirit that comes and says, well, I'll be a lying spirit. And uh, I've got three points on that. You know, we won't go there today. If you want to know, come see me. Let's not spend time talking about the lying spirit. There is such an individual as well in the tribulation, and Thessalonians talks about that. And Anyway, it really wasn't that Ahab himself was actually deceived by the lying spirit. He already could discern truth. That's the reason he didn't accept what Micaiah said when Micaiah said, go on. Ahab wasn't fooled. The guy's not a dummy. And as well, the lying spirit, of course, can't, you know, couldn't deceive Ahab. And I mean, Ahab had already made a determination he was going to go. So it really wasn't that, in a sense, the lying spirit was just kind of subordinate to what Ahab was already doing. But anyway, at the center of Micaiah's proclamation is the throne scene in verse number 18. And it's not as descriptive, right? You can see that. It's not as descriptive of God and the throne as what the other passages have been that we've looked at. Because that's not really the point that's here. Here we have the sovereign God sitting on his throne with the host of heaven surrounding him. In fact, they're actually standing, it says, ready to do his bidding. And what God is doing with regards to the lying spirit folks is carrying out the judgment that he has already determined should come against Ahab. 1 Kings 21, 21 to 24. And what this scene is, is a courtroom scene with the judge of all the earth. The judge who Abraham said always does right. The judge of all the earth giving his verdict on the life and evil deeds of this man. As Alfred Edersheim, the Jewish historian, said, quote, Instead of Ahab sitting on his throne, surrounded by his own flattering prophets and anticipating his victorious march on Ramoth Gilead, it is Jehovah, the God of truth, surrounded by all his hosts, who sat on his judgment seat, decreeing the destruction of the infatuated king. Well, Zedekiah, you remember, doesn't, take, doesn't like what Micaiah said, so he slaps him. He rebukes him. <laughs> but oh, Micaiah, I mean, rather than remaining silent, he just, he just says to him, look, the day's going to come, uh, in verse number 24, the day's going to come when you're going to hide yourself. In other words, he's predicting a time of disaster and that Zedekiah would try to hide himself from the disaster that's going to come. Ahab's had enough of this. Away with the prophet. <laughs> so in verses 25, 26, and 27, he says, imprison him. And give him bread and water. And Micaiah, this guy won't back down. And he says in verse 27, if you return in peace, then God has not spoken to me. And he says to the people that are present hearken in other words he addressed all the people and said you mark you you mark my words if this man comes back god hasn't spoken to me <laughs> and you remember the rest of the chapter feeding perfectly yesterday the words of god you know you can try to hide from the words of god but god knows the chink in your armor and it only takes a little arrowhead about that long and about that wide and you're a dead man and so Ahab falls in his chariot, you remember, just has to wallow in his own blood because he would not heed the words of God. Now, folks, Micaiah is a fearless prophet. He just isn't going to back down. But notice the heart 
of what he's remembered for. Verse 13, as the Lord liveth, even what my God saith, that will I speak. Verse 18, again he said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Verse number 26, you know, you can, in verse 26, you can afflict this man because of what he says, but in verse 27, he will not back down. Then hath the Lord not spoken of me. Here is courage. Not to give out his own opinions, his own pet doctrines, his own pet beliefs, his own personal convictions. Here, folks, is courage to speak the truth. And in the Bible, this is Micaiah's story. It's the only thing he's remembered for. And Micaiah commits his case not to the creator or to the lawgiver. He commits his case to the judge of the living and the dead. The God who in the end judges a man's ministry and whether as a prophetic voice he has been faithful to the truth. And that's what this man is here for. Now, the fact is that courageous preaching is every preacher's calling. Courageous preaching is every preacher's calling. And by that, I don't mean brash, belligerent, in-your-face kind of preaching. But enough of that. Christ was known for his unflinching delivery of truth, but folks, you remember, he was also known for his gracious words. He was not belligerent. But the courageous, uncompromising, undiluted heralding of truth as the voice of God is the calling given to every preacher. As someone said, quote, one of the characteristics of a prophet is that he not only speaks God's word without diluting it in any way, but he also speaks it with absolute confidence that what he has said is true and he is undisturbed if his message is not accepted. Doesn't bother him. I mean, I think I, sh I, should, I should just add a, a footnote to that. I think we find in Scripture that it does bother him to the sense that in prayer he'll go to the Lord, like, like Moses did for the people, and he will grieve over the hard heart of the people. But he doesn't take personal offense at it. I studied 10 hours this week, and, you know, on the way out the door they said, you know, rah, rah, rah. Don't they know that I've sacrificed for the sheep? Makai didn't take it personally. Courageous preaching, folks, is every preacher's calling. And you know what? There is a preeminent passage. In fact, I just wonder if it's not the foremost passage in all the Bible that teaches this. And with that, I kind of have your attention, but with that, with that, I hate to tell you what the passage is. <laughs> because we're all going to go, oh, I already know that. But if you will think about this passage that we're going to go to in light of Micaiah and the preachers in the Bible you know, folks, it really is what I think is all, probably the premier passage. There are other passages that address this, but it probably is the premier passage in the Bible that tells a man to preach the word in season and out of season, even when people want their ears tickled. And Ahab says, just tell me what I want to know. It's a unanimous decision, Micaiah, just go along with the crowd. 
The guy says, not on your life. You know why? Because there's someone who judges the quick and the dead. So what's that passage? That's yeah, 2 Timothy 4. Go over there with me. Yeah, I like I say, I you know, we think of that, oh, well, we know that passage. But just, just look. And remember, of course, who's writing this. This is Paul. <laughs> I think he was pretty valiant for the truth, wasn't he? Sure, look at him. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at, the, at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heat to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and should be turned to fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. And part of the preacher's calling is to face opposition, whatever degree that may be, and still deliver God's message, to deliver it no matter what the circumstances. Now here's this familiar passage, but folks, and, and, and I'm, my intention is not to work through it. I'm just trying to relate it to Micaiah, not to stretch the truth or out of pure speculation, but fact, the men, the fact is that this is Micaiah. And so I just, by way of introduction, just point out two things. Number one, any man committed to the mandate in verse 2 to preach the word will be tested on that point. Verse 3, for the time will come. Has it come in your life? Has it come in your ministry? The day will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Every, listen, every generation of preacher has known this to be true. And not a one of us here this morning that's any exception. Give us something new. Give us something fresh. Something more relevant. Now listen to Micaiah's messenger. Behold, the words of the prophet declare good to the king with one assent. Let thy word therefore be like theirs and speak thou good. Every preacher is tested on his commitment to his prophetic calling. But note also in verses 2 and 3 that our message is not crafted to fit the desires of those men. The instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. The time's going to come, but you just, in verse 5, watch thou in all things and, and you just keep plodding on. And as one preacher, the old preacher used to say, listen, our message is not crafted after the desires of men. And as the old preacher used to say, God's man is not for hire. And one reason for that is because, listen, many reasons for that, men, but one reason for that is because the truth, no matter how unpalatable it may be at the time, the truth is what people need. It is their very life. And without it, they will waste away to nothing. So don't compromise. Watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make proof of full proof of thy ministry. Why? Why should you do that? Well, the context. Chapter 3, verse 1. These are perilous times. And you know that all the way from chapter 3, 1 down to chapter 3, verse 7. 
what people need to hold them fast in perilous times is the truth. Listen, it is the truth in verse 16 and 17 that is going to equip and make a man perfect or complete and thoroughly furnish for him for every good work that God has called him to in his entire life. So, verse 14, chapter 3, 14, continue thou in the things which you have learned, Timothy, as a preacher, continue in the things you have learned because it's the Bible that people need in perilous time because it's the only thing that's going to equip them for the voyage of life. It's the truth that people need. So, preach the word. Now, although people need that, Sometimes they don't realize that, and what that's going to bring if you preach that is a slap from Zedekiah. And it may not be a physical slap, it might be a verbal one. It might even include imprisonment with nothing but water and the bread of affliction. You know what they're going to do? They're going to try and starve you out. They're, it's, they're going to use the old tactic, they're going to lay siege to the city and smoke you out. Ah, they'll do that. Chapter 3, verse 10. Look, you've known my doctrine and manner of life and purpose and faith and long-suffering and charity and peace, power patience. I mean, I've been pretty faithful, but you also know this. Persecutions. I faced persecutions and afflictions which came to me, and now Paul actually names the city. Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but... Out of them all the Lord delivered me, yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. This is all in the context that then brings Paul, as you know, in chapter 4, verse 1, and says, I charge thee, therefore, the therefore pointing back to all of this in chapter 3. So therefore, in light of all of this, perilous times, people need the truth, but you're going to get persecuted for it. Therefore, just keep preaching the Bible. Just give them the truth. Rejection and persecution are the lot of the preacher. Opposition and slander and misunderstanding and disappointment and danger. These are all normal portions of the faithful pastor's ministry. We wish they weren't. <laughs> we are but dust. But they are. But don't fret. Don't fret. Because the judge is sitting on the throne in heaven, and like Micaiah did, what we need to do is encourage ourselves with that fact. So verse number 1, 2 Timothy 4, 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, notice this, who shall judge the quick, who shall judge the living and the dead at his appearing. Now you're going to have to wait till he appears. And I'd like for brother so-and-so to be dealt with this week. <laughs> but we're going to have to wait till he appears. It's then that he brings his reward with him. But can you, folks, listen, can you see what Paul's doing here? In these times and the persecution that comes, I mean, we're committed to the truth. It is the inspired word of God. But people are going to come and they're going to want something new, something fresh, something whatever. And if you be faithful, what you're going to do is get persecution because of that. But you just encourage yourself with this fact. Look, the judge will judge. There's coming a future day when the judge will judge. And then he knows 
and I, you know, I'm, I'm not just trying to, you know, down everybody who opposes us. In prayer, we ought to grieve over them. We ought to intercede for them like Moses with the people. And the Lord may be gracious and really, you know, continue to bless them. But we have to encourage ourselves with this. Listen, by faith, by faith, we need to encourage ourselves with this. By faith, we need to encourage it. It's going to take faith to, I know. But in faith, in the midst of that, we need to encourage ourselves. 2 Corinthians 4, you don't need to turn there. You know the passage. Folks, Second, listen, we've got to encourage ourselves with this because of who we are. 2 Corinthians 4 reveals that a preacher is nothing but an earthen vessel. He's nothing but a clay pot. He's nothing but a jar of clay. And the physical makeup of such men can cause them to be mentally and emotionally fragile. The physical makeup of men can cause them to be mentally and emotionally fragile. And that's not just some men, that's all men. We all are but dust. And we can be very fragile. As Blaine Allen said, you need to buy the book. <laughs> when people throw stones, blame it on Brother Apps. He's the one who put me onto it. Good book, helpful book. A Leader's Guide to Fielding Personal Criticism. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like you're in a game and people are keep batting to you stones and you're out there trying to feel them, you know, grab it and throw it back at them, you know. Well, no, you don't throw it back at them, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> but as, as he says, listen, listen to what he says about being a clay pot. Such men are not super speaker. They're not super leader. They're not super pastor. They're not super volunteer. They're not got it all together leader. They're nothing but a clay pot, brittle and breakable. A clay pot that chips, that cracks, that crumbles. They're not even super pot. They're just pot. That's all we are. Now, we all know that, that God meant that for his glory. But our nature, listen, our, day, our, our nature does have the tendency to be affected by the Ahabs and the Zedekiahs in life. So take heart in the fact that the judge of all the earth will one day judge the living and the dead, and someday he will set it all straight and just heed Romans 12, 12, be patient in tribulation. And in the meantime, heed the admonition and follow Paul's example. I'm now ready to be offered in the time of my departures at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. And, oh, Lord, I'm ready to go. Just take me home. Courageous preaching is every preacher's calling. And having stones thrown at you is the result of such a courageous ministry. There's no way to avoid that. Now, it is encouraging and confirmatory to find the points of this preeminent passage exemplified in the lives of numerous prophets in the Scriptures. For instance, what do you know about Jeremiah? <laughs> uh, go over to Jeremiah. What's that? What's that? Oh, is it? Well, you preached Isaiah 6 yesterday, so I, I'm, on, I'm on fair ground. 
<laughs> I'll just refer to him. Here's Jeremiah chapter 1. And here he is. Here's his call in verses 4 and 5. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. So he's got a call of God on his life, Jeremiah 1, 4 and 5. But notice then what the Lord says. Verse 7, But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces. Now, why did God say that? Why did God have to tell Jeremiah not to be afraid of their faces? Well, number one, because people are going to look at him. And the nature of, the nature of men is to be fearful. You know, there he is in the back. You're preaching away, your hands full. Or worse yet, you're in the back preaching and he goes, and the whole church hears it. <laughs> what was that? You know? <laughs> and there is that tendency. So don't be afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee. Verse 9, then the Lord put his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. Seeing this day I've set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and destroy and to throw down and to build and to plan. That doesn't sound like a very exciting ministry. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind the, the idea of building and planting, but, you know, rooting out and pulling down and destroying and throwing down, that, that you know, that, that doesn't sound good. In my, in my flesh, it does. <laughs> but, but that's what he was given. So, notice verse 17. Thou therefore gird up thy loins and arise and speak unto them all that I command thee. Be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound thee. Be not dismayed. Verse 18. For behold, I have made thee this day a defense city, an iron pillar, and brazen walls against the whole land, against the kings, against the, prince, the priests, the people. Verse 19, and they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. Now you're going to have to wait to the appearing of the judge, but they will not prevail, for I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. You know, folks, what that basically is telling us, men, it's basically telling us that God made Jeremiah equal to the task he was given. And God does that with preachers. He makes them in nature and giftedness equal to the people they minister to. And I'm not just trying, you know, that, you know, I'm, you know, the tendencies we think about this is to think all, you know, all people are, you know, kind of hard heads. And <laughs> that's, I'm, I'm not trying to go there because God does that too. You just see that, you know, here are people and basically they're conservative kind of people and agricultural people and just kind of patient and gracious and it's amazing that God puts that kind of man there somebody like Micaiah probably wouldn't make it they'd probably kick him out because he was too rough too brazen and God just has this wonderful way of, of making a man you know he fits a man to people and fits people to him but once in a while you got a Zedekiah who makes horns and comes at you you know so here's Jeremiah you know, when I think about this, one of my favorite guys, one of my favorite men on the Bible when I think about this is Ezekiel. You know, here's Ezekiel over here in Ezekiel chapter 3. 
and um, <clears throat> he's got the, he's got the I'm, I'm just pointing these Jeremiah and Ezekiel out <clears throat> and you you men are aware of this but I'm just pointing these out because they exemplify exactly what we saw in second Corinthians or second Timothy chapter 4 you know here's Ezekiel notice here's his calling in verses 1 to 3 and I won't take the time to read that, but in essence, he's given, he's given him, God gives him the scriptures that he is to really impart these and incarnate these into his life so he can give out, in verse number three, this, the honey and the sweetness of that. But verse four, then he said, Son of man, go, get thee unto the house of Israel and speak my words unto them, for thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and of a hard language, but to the house of Israel. In other words, you're sent to your own folk, not to many people of a strange speech and of a hard language, whose words thou, shalt, thou canst not understand. Surely had I sent thee to them, they would have hearkened to thee. Verse 7, but the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee, for they will not hearken to me, for all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. How'd you like that to get a call to a city like that? Just coming out of Bible college, and you say, Lord, where would you like for us to go? He says, well, i got a place that I'd like, but I'd, I'm going to tell you the people there are, are hardheads. They're just impudent, and they're hard-hearted. Now, I need someone to go there. Would you be willing to do that? So verse 8, remember what I said? He makes people equal to the task. Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces and thy forehead strong against their hard heads. And as an, as, as an adamant, harder than flint have I made thy forehead. Fear them not, don't be dismayed. So here's Ezekiel and he's going to people and they got hard heads and Ezekiel is always butting heads with them. Some men's ministry is like that. That's not a very exciting ministry. Apparently, some men's ministry entails a lot of that. Ezekiel was one of them. And that would take real grace from the Lord, wouldn't it? To be that kind of man, but to keep being gracious and kind like the Lord was, to minister gracious words when people just keep butting you with their horns. But notice, by way of encouragement, that God makes a man equal to the task. He made a man with a hard head. So the preacher's calling includes the charge to courageously preach the word in season and out of season when people listen and when they don't. When he's approached excuse me, appreciated when he's abused. Don't be discouraged. Now with 2 Timothy 4 and the callings of Jeremiah and Ezekiel in mind, just go back with me for a few moments to 2 Chronicles chapter 18. Let's tie this back into Micaiah's ministry. 2 Chronicles 18. And what I want us to do, man, is I want us to see what it was that gave Micaiah courage in the face of all of this adversity. What gave him courage? What fortified Micaiah to preach an uncompromising message? Where did the courage come from to be the lone voice for truth in the midst of a den of lions? And when I looked at this, I, I really looked hard to find what the text revealed that gave him courage. I mean, I didn't try, I, I just want you to know my approach. I wasn't trying to scratch around and, and trying to dig up little bits and say, oh, that sounds good. That, you know, that gives a man courage. 
But I really tried to look in the text at what I, what I felt the text was highlighting about this man that would give him such courage. The first thing I put down, I, I just, I noted five things. It's the last one that's the key in the passage, but I noted five. First and foremost, I think one of the things that gave this man courage is that he, is that he embraced his calling to be a voice for God. He embraced that. At some point, and it may have been when he was first commissioned to the preaching ministry, but at some point he came to grips with the reality of his calling, that he was a voice for God, and if the prophetic office was to fulfill the divine objective, it was needful that he, without fear or favor, deliver the message of Jehovah. Came to grips with that. Possibly, he mixed this, or mixed with this compulsion was also a strong sense of accountability before God. But whatever it was that stirred the embers into flame, Micaiah embraced the fact that he was God's voice for that hour. The most obvious indication of this is, of course, in verse number 13. As the Lord liveth, even what my God saith, I will speak. But again, in verse number 16... He says, and the Lord said. Verse 18, hear the word of the Lord. And then from verse 19 on down, his message is peppered with reference to, references to God speaking. Verse 19, verse 20, verse 22, and finally verse 27, he comes back and he just said, you know, if the Lord hath not spoken to me, um, you know, if thou return in peace, and the Lord had not spoken with me. He, he, he became convinced, first and foremost, Micaiah embraced his calling to be the voice of God and to speak all that God said exactly as God said it. And what this commitment, listen, what this commitment and conviction did was hold him fast when someone tempted him to compromise, like in verse 12. Under no circumstances could he divest himself of his calling or fail in his duty to fulfill it. It had become ingrained in him. To fail to fulfill his calling was really to go against his own nature in a sense. And the convictions that he had made, it was to cross a line. And there will be many times when a contemporary preacher, I just use the word in the sense of a preacher today, will have to go back to his commissioning by God and draw upon that for courage. You'll have to go back to the basics and draw. Remember the time when God at that camp or that fire or in that church service or in your private devotions, go back to that and remember, God called me to be a voice for this hour and I can't go against that, no matter what it costs. Second thing, I think in the passage that indicates Micaiah uh, gave him courage, was that his entire life, just a little progression from that, his entire life was characterized by this type of uncompromising preaching. He was known for this. <laughs> Micaiah was known publicly for being this kind of a man. Again, I, I have to put it in here, not a belligerent, brash, hard-hearted, in-your-face kind of preacher. <clears throat> But he was just known for being a man who always spoke the truth. Way back in verses 6 and 7, 
You know, Jehoshaphat wants to know if there's such a man. Ahab doesn't like him, but Ahab knows that's this kind of guy. Maybe verse 12 hints at that. Verse 15, verse 17, all of these passages indicate that it was characteristic of his life to speak the truth. He had a blameless life and ministry in this regard. And Ahab in verse 7 and 12 reveals that he could count on Micaiah to speak a certain way. <laughs> Even his enemy knew that. I don't, like, I don't like the guy. He always speaks evil against me. Ahab already knew before he got the guy what he was going to say. Now, what this undiluted faithful preaching does is, number one, Establish, if we establish a precedent, this establishment of a precedent habitual characteristic as Micaiah had in his life. Listen, if you establish that, that this is always the way you are, it's hard to break away from that and to get away from that. It, it's become part of your nature and it helps to hold you fast in the winds of adversity. But also, undiluted faithful preaching did this because it was known publicly that Micaiah was this way, that puts pressure on a man to stay that way. Even if they're your enemy, it's public knowledge that the guy in town only speaks the truth. He only speaks this way, and that will put pressure on you not to deviate from that. This characteristic of your life that's known publicly. Third thing the passage seems to indicate that or that gave Micaiah courage, was that he was convinced, listen, he was convinced that the words he spoke had come directly from God. Now that ought to put backbone in a man. Verse 18, and he said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. And he goes on and talks about what he got from God. Micaiah knew that what he spoke and the message he was to deliver had come directly from God. And when a man knows that what he speaks is the truth and was given to him by God, that gives a man courage. He knows he has the truth. He knows it's what people need. He knows people will be held accountable for it. He knows that for people to argue with it is to argue with God. He knows that what he says will come to pass. Things will happen just like he said, just like Genesis 1. And he knows that one day God will vindicate his man. In the midst of the downgrade comp compromise, Spurgeon said that the dogs could eat him, but that the day would come when he knew he would be vindicated. And we're talking about him today. The dogs ate him. But we're here today talking about it because God vindicated the man. And for the man who puts his head in the Bible and ransacks its pages... For the man who gets his commentaries and his books on theology and his lexicons and his Bible encyclopedias and gets in prayer with God using those efforts, he will finally come out with what the text says and what God has spoken. And when a man has that and he stands in the pulpit and he knows he's got God's word for the hour, it gives him an unqualified boldness and authority. Again, not a belligerent spirit, but it does give him authority because it is thus saith the Lord. It gives him courage. Number four, Micaiah gained courage from this. He was undeterred by the possibility of retribution. Verse 23, if you take that, 
You know, this rebuke by Zedekiah, he comes back in verse 24 and says, look, there's going to come the day when all this is going to come to pass and you're going to hide yourself in the disaster. This guy's got 400 prophets standing behind him. <laughs> Man, I'd wither. You know, here's one, there's me, and then there's that guy, and there's 400 men standing behind him. You know, 400, 400 that's a lot of people. You're one guy, one lone voice. The tendency would be to wither. And then, of course, in verses 25 and 26, the, the king comes back and says, put that guy in prison and feed him with bread and water of affliction. And Micaiah just comes back and he just says, look, if you come back, God hasn't spoken by me. You, the guy won't back down. He's undeterred by the possibility of retribution. It was Alexander McLaren, <clears throat> Scottish preacher, who said, My friends, if you are true prophets like Micaiah, you will be called upon to warn the church. And the thing about which you will be called upon to warn them is sin. In warning men of sin, you will have to, <clears throat> you will have to cast popularity aside. If you preach this gospel faithfully, you will see men whom you have called your friends turn against you and join the general hue and cry. You'll be subjected to misrepresentation and slander of all kinds. You will bear both ridicule and abuse. You'll be attacked behind and before. But there are some compensations in the prophet's life. Many will speak ill of you. But there is one who will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And what gave Micaiah courage? We could have spent the entire message on this, but I think the premier thing within the passage that gave Micaiah courage was that God was the judge and that his verdicts would come to pass. And that's what you've got in verse 18. God's verdicts, folks, would come to pass, and that includes both vindicating the truth and vindicating the man who speaks it. And that seems to be what is here in this text. It's really the thing that stood out. This throne seen from God, God sitting on his throne, all the hosts, and God pronounces his verdict. And that's what comes to pass. And Ahab tried to hide from it, and he couldn't. And the man died like God said. Let me quote again from Edersheim. He said, instead of Ahab sitting on his throne, surrounded by his own flattering prophets, and anticipating his victorious march on Ramoth Gilead, it's Jehovah, the God of truth, surrounded by his hosts, who sat on his judgment seat, decreeing the destruction of the infatuated king. And then commenting on verse 27, Edersheim said, to this, be he prince or private person, if he be in inward opposition to God's revealed truth, there's only one answer. If he be in opposition to God's revealed truth, there's only one answer for that man. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them in derision. And then Edersheim added, But Micaiah could not let it pass unnoticed. The honor of Jehovah, whose prophet he was, required the reply, If thou comest at all, in peace, Jehovah hath not spoken. And then turning to the multitude around, he summoned them as witnesses between himself and the king. And so with his hosts around him, God, of God as, as 
uh, of all heaven, having all heaven at his disposal to carry out his judgments, God pronounces his verdict, and at a venture, a man drew a bow, and Ahab fell. At a venture. Ah, wasn't it a venture? The judge of all the earth who does right guided that arrow. This conviction that the judge is sovereign and that all of his verdicts will come to pass gave Micaiah unflinching courage and conviction. And I've got some verses read, jotted down here that we're not going to go to this morning. But you know them, Jeremiah 17.10 and Jeremiah 32.19, Psalm 62.1-12, they all talk about that God rewards a man according to his works. But I also jotted down, and I put this in red letters to highlight it, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1-5, to that's that passage about someday Christ the Messiah is going to come, and in judge, and with a rod of iron, he's going to rule the earth. In other words, you read that, Isaiah 11, when Christ comes back, he's going to set everything right. Everything will be set right when Christ the King comes back. Now, let me, listen, let me remind us again that this is the only incident in the Bible regarding this man. It's the only thing that's here. There's nothing about his life before this, and there's nothing after this. This is the unique message of this man for us today. Speak the truth courageously. Be valiant for the truth. And if you will, there are these considerations for time. Again, we won't go to the references. You would know them. But there's these three considerations to add to that. Number one, we follow in the steps of our great Savior if we do. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. Remember, he suffered. And, you're going to and he's going to come in glory. And you're going to follow him. And in that day, you will have exceeding joy that you suffered like the Savior. We follow in the steps of the Savior. Number two... Here's a consolation. We're in the company of great men. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 14 to 16 tells us that passage. Remember that? God sent prophets before times and after times and all the times, and they stoned them and they abused them and they ridiculed them, and finally God said enough and he sent the people into exile. We're in the company of great men. You've got a lot of good peers around you. But encourage yourself in light of that with this wonderful truth. We're, in, we're earning a great reward. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and following give us the, you know, the, the Beatitudes. And the last of those is, you know, when people speak evil against you and say all manner of evil against you falsely, be encouraged because great is your reward in heaven. Now, the fact is that we, like Micaiah, are preaching in savage seasons, perilous times. This is not unique to us. We don't want to sit down and have a pity party. Woe is me, play your violin. My heart bleeds for you. We don't want to do that. Every generation has required fearless and courageous preaching in the face of, of a wayward culture, and that's part of the benefit, one of the blessings of coming to a conference like this. You can get with other men, and, you know, we don't go down a subway and grab a coffee. Well, you wouldn't go down a subway and get a coffee anyway. <clears throat> you, might, <laughs> you might get a good sandwich there, but you wouldn't get good coffee. Well, anyway, we don't go down town and get a cup of coffee and sit down and woe is me, you know, tell me your problems. And let's cry on each other's shoulders. That's not the point, but we do, you know, iron sharpen, we do encourage each other. It's a real blessing, but... Every generation has faced this, but Micaiah's ministry teaches us that we do, we do, uh, you know, we're going to face opposition. 
And like Micaiah, we too may eat the bread of affliction or drink the waters of Mara. But be assured that there's coming a day when Revelation 7, 17 will be true. The lamb that sits in the midst of the throne shall feed you and shall lead you unto living fountains of water and shall wipe away all tears from your eyes. So hold fast the word of truth that you have been taught and wherein you stand and be brethren, be valiant for the truth. Many here today may not be familiar with the name Charles Simeon. But Simeon was ordained to the gospel ministry in 1782, and he spent his entire life pastoring the same church, Trinity Church in Cambridge, England. Even today, Simeon is held in very high esteem by many students of the Bible. There's the Simeon Trust that has its own website and holds multiple workshops and preaching conferences around the world today. I'm not sure that we would agree with all of that. They may be a fairly new evangelical, but... They are trying to uphold preaching. But in his day, Simeon was bitterly opposed by his own church members. In 1782, Trinity Church, the pastor of Trinity Church died. And if you know the church history, that part of the, that time period, anyway, the bishop appointed Simeon to be the pastor. The church didn't want Simeon to be the pastor. They wanted the assistant to be the pastor. When Simeon found out, he said, I won't take the church. The bishop says, well, if you don't take it, I still want to appoint the assistant. So Simeon said, okay, I'll take the church. But the church didn't want him. And he faced unprecedented opposition. The first thing a congregation did in rebellion against Simeon was refuse to let him speak on the Sunday afternoon service. That would be like our Sunday evening service. The Sunday morning service was under the charge of the bishop, but the Sunday afternoon service was under the charge of the congregation. And the congregation said, we're not letting him speak. So for five years, they only let the assistant speak. Simeon couldn't speak. When the assistant left and went somewhere else, they hired another guy for the next seven years to do the Sunday afternoon service. For 12 years, they wouldn't let their own pastor speak in the service, the Sunday afternoon service. During this time, Simeon tried to start a later Sunday evening service at the church. For a couple times it happened, and then the church leadership came and they locked the doors and they wouldn't let people come in. They'd let them stay on the street. And then what the church did was, you remember they had those old pews with pew doors on them? Everybody had their pews and they rented the pews and paid. Then, they, then all the church leaders came and locked the, or all the people came that had the pews, they came and they locked the pews and they wouldn't let anybody, they wouldn't come to church to hear Simeon, but they wouldn't let anybody else. So you know what Simeon did? Simeon got some chairs and he put them in the aisles and put them in the corners of the church. That was all at his own expense. And the church leaders came along the next week and they took all the chairs and threw them out in the church courtyard. And when Simeon would visit house to house, no one would open the doors. That lasted for 10 years. Nobody would even open the door. Students at Cambridge University so despised Simeon's uncompromising stand that they used to come to the services and disrupt them. In fact, one of his fellow lecturers even scheduled his Greek classes on Sunday nights so the students couldn't come to hear Simeon. And Simeon stuck it out and slowly won over the hearts of the people. And after 49 years, at the age of 71, someone asked Simeon how he had surmounted the persecution and outlasted the prejudice against him. Simeon's, listen, Simeon's answer is worth meditating on. He said, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through the hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his sufferings and triumph over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. 
And Simeon stayed there and pastored that church for 54 years. So taking Simeon's own words, I would say this, brothers, we must not mind a little suffering. Be valiant for the truth. And remember the words of Peter. When Christ appears and his glory is revealed, you will be glad also with exceeding joy. Be valiant for the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time this morning. Pray that you'd minister your word to our hearts, encourage us with it. Lord, we are but weak. You know we are but clay pots, earthen vessels. Give us strength, Lord, to be faithful. Not for ourselves, but through all of this you might receive honor and glory. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>